Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. As I would give these pitches, I would realize that people got really excited about features that I knew they weren't going to use. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to work with talent agencies to get your product in the hands of celebrities, how to educate customers on a product that requires hands-on use, and how to design your store to convert for new customers and repeat customers. Today, I'm joined by David Barnett from PopSockets. PopSockets is a unique smartphone accessory that provides multiple kickstands, management for your headset, and ergonomic grips for your texting, calling, and gaming convenience. It was started in 2012 and based out of Boulder, Colorado. Welcome, David. Thanks very much for having me, Felix. Yeah, so we're just talking a little bit off air about how much I'm a fan of your products, and I've purchased your products in the past before. I think I've had three or four over the years from different cell phones that, that I've used, and I recommend them to anyone that has a cell phone. Especially for me, I live in New York, and it's super convenient for me on the subways to be essentially have one hand free to hold on to the rail, to hold on to the, the, the bars when the trains are moving. But for anyone out there that doesn't know about what a pop socket is, can you describe how it works? Sure. A pop socket is, it looks like a one and a half inch diameter button uh, that sticks to the back of your phone or a case, and then it expands out about an inch, an inch to an inch and a half. It expands out away from the back side of your phone by way of an accordion mechanism. So it's kind of a soft uh, elastomer material, the accordion that pops, pops out, hence the name pop socket. And once uh, your pop socket is expanded, uh, the most valuable function is the grip, as you said. So you can pull your hand out um, from behind the phone and access the whole screen because you no longer have to use your hand to hold the phone and then try to type with it. If you're trying to use your phone with one hand, uh, you can pull your hand out and use that grip to allow your thumb to access the whole screen safely without dropping your phone. But as you mentioned, it can also be used as a stand, uh, different angles of stand. I initially invented it as a headset management system with a pair of pop sockets. And you can use them to, to clip your phone on, on clothing um, and as a fidget. So people get addicted to mm-hmm. playing with their pop socket. I'm not sure if you play with yours. Do you? <laughs> I definitely do. It's certainly a, a tick of mine that I'm sure might annoy my, my neighbors when I'm playing with it. Right. Now, that, that, I think that's a great description for anyone that still needs a more visual uh, uh, look at it, definitely check out the website at popsockets.com. So you mentioned that you originally invented this for one of the purposes that, that turned out to, to serve. How did you come up with this idea? Like, what was your process for coming up with a product like this? Back in 2011, uh, I was tired of my headset tangling, my earbuds. So I always talked on the phone with earbuds. I didn't like holding my phone up to my ear. Every time I'd take them out of my pocket, they were in a knot. I was tired of that, so I I can vividly remember just walking to my car and driving to the nearest Joanne Fabric uh, sort of hobby store to figure out a solution to this problem. And I walked around the store, found some giant clothing buttons. First, I tried gluing one to the back of my iPhone 3 back then. Uh, Of course, I needed to put a little spacer between it and the phone so there was space for me to wrap my headset around it. 
but the the big microphone on the uh, earbuds didn't wrap nicely around a single uh, button, uh-huh. so I decided to to turn it into a, a two two button solution. So I had two giant clothing buttons glued to the back of my iPhone three. Each had a little spacer button uh, under hidden underneath it, and then I would wrap my headset around these two huge. They were like two inch diameter, big black buttons. Wrapped my headset around the two of them, and it worked great. My problem was solved. Um, so, and I had no intention of taking this to market. Uh-huh. I just wanted the headset to stop tangling. And then, uh, as more and more family and friends saw it, you're probably expecting me to say they encouraged me to take it to market. <laughs> but in fact, they laughed at me and said that it looked really stupid, um, and I should be embarrassed to have it on the back of my phone. So it was just the opposite. And I decided to start tinkering with ways to get the buttons to expand and collapse. And the thought was to de- develop a case where the, the buttons would collapse flush with the backside of the case. And uh, users, including myself, could wrap their headsets around these two buttons and then collapse them over the headset uh, so that they wouldn't stick out from the case. Uh, and I launched a Kickstarter campaign around that case in 2012. Um, and it wasn't for another six months that I that I, I invented the current product, the popular product, which that sticks to cases and and uh, phones and can be repositioned. And I invented that because I was uh, unhappy with the case. So I, when I showed it to uh, friends, family, students, I was a teacher at the time. I noticed they all used it for the grip. But very few people actually used it for the headset management. Mm-hmm. So they they liked a couple of the functions that that I wanted it to have. But I originally invented it for the headset management, and it just wasn't ideally designed for the grip because the pop sockets one was on the on the top of the case, one was on the bottom. But we needed the grip right in the center, the pop sockets grip, and that's when I invented the standalone, so people could position it wherever they wanted. Uh, and launched the business on the Shopify platform in around 2014 out of my garage. Got it. So when you when you you, you mentioned that you the original intention was to help you store your your headphones, your headsets, that the cables yeah. without having to have it all tangled, and that was the original reason for the invention. But then you started seeing people were using it for you know other other reasons, right? For the for the grip, and your reaction wasn't uh, a reaction where you were like, "Oh, you're using it wrong. Let me teach you how to use it. Let me <laughs> force you, essentially, to use it the right way." Your reaction was, "Let me see why people." Are using this way, they invent a product that improved that kind of, at that time, the secondary benefit. So why, why did you, how, how did you know to go in that direction rather than trying to force people to use it more for the, the wires? Because to, to be honest, I'd actually never use it for the wires. I use it only for the grip and for the stand. So I wonder how, how, how did you know to, to go along with what people were using it for in reality? Ah, it was a good guess, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a, it was even more lucky than you'd imagine because, in fact, when I would survey uh, big classrooms full of students, you know, I'd visit and talk to business school class classes or my own classes, the students were all really excited about the headset management. When I asked who in this room would use this product to, to wrap their headset and prevent it from tangling, almost everybody in the room raised their hands. But then when I gave uh, samples to my students and watched them after a week or two using the product, none of them were using it for headset management. Mm. Uh, and so what, what appealed to people was not what they got addicted to. And I, I just thought to myself, surely if people are going to use this for more than a few weeks, 
it's got to be designed around the reason they're actually using it for a few weeks and not the reason they think they like it, which was the headset management. And that was also an issue, you know, once we went to market, convincing people they needed a grip, it's really tough. Most people say, I don't need a grip. Mm -hmm. I can hold my phone just fine. If you ask uh, someone, do you need a a headset management system? A lot of people actually say yes. Mm -hmm. So it was a challenge to actually, you know, market this to people and get it in their hands and, and get them to fall in love. Well, actually, that's the easy part, getting them to fall in love with the grip um, and sometimes maybe marketing it for headset management because that's what they thought they wanted it for. Hmm, that's interesting. So a couple of points there that I want to touch on. The first one is about surveying, right? Surveying and the validation. And if you followed exactly what they were saying, that could have led you in the wrong direction, essentially, right? Because they were yeah. using it completely differently than what they were saying they're using it for. So what, what kind of lessons can you kind of glean from that when you, about survey, take or, you know, creating surveys or, or validation? I mean, it's a, it's a great topic. I heard somebody say to me the other day uh, regarding a product we're working on, this person said to me, you know, I showed it to my daughter my middle school daughter, and she said she would use that all day long. And I showed it to my son. He's in high school, and he said he would only use it every other week, but he'd use this other product of yours that's in the pipeline too every day. And my response was, yeah, unfortunately, these kids also say they want a puppy (laughs) dog, and they're going to take care of that puppy every day, and they're going to love that puppy every day. But in fact, once you get them the puppy dog, after a week, uh, someone else is going to be taking care of that puppy dog. So you really can't take too seriously uh, what people say in these surveys. You've got to get the product in their hands and watch what they actually do with it over time uh, is what I've learned. So do you think that it's, should you avoid surveying and go straight for getting the product in people's hands and, and watching them? Because yeah. it's not so much that it's just it's giving you not enough information, it's almost giving you the wrong information. Exactly. Yeah, no, they could close down an avenue that could be very productive otherwise or send you down the wrong avenue. So I would caution against uh, surveys and, and encourage people to build crude prototypes, not too crude, but don't spend a lot of money, build as many prototypes as you can and get people playing with them, using them and giving feedback after they use them for a few weeks, not, not immediate feedback. Got it. So talk to us about that process. So you get a prototype into potential customers' hands. They, they get to use it for a bit. What kind of questions do you, you ask them when you, when you meet up with them again? I mean, I was in I was in somewhat of a privileged position because I was around uh, hundreds of students. I was a professor mm-hmm. at the time I invented this, so I didn't have to ask them questions. I could just watch them. Uh, so I right. put pops, I gave pop sockets to all of my students. Had some friends give them to their class, and after a few weeks, you know, maybe I'd ask them, "Raise your hand if you're still using it," or "Raise your hand if you've talked to anybody about it," or sent anybody to the website. Questions like that, but as far as questions about, you know, how are you using it every day, I found it more informative to watch them when they're walking in the room. What are they doing with it when they're walking out? What are they doing with it? Are they fidgeting with it during class? Um, And that information differed from, you know, surely sometimes I'd ask them, what's your favorite feature? But uh, more important to watch the people. I suppose Mm -hmm. if people don't have that opportunity, just be clever in how you're creating your questions. You know, how much time do you spend fidgeting with it? How much time do you spend doing this? Instead of what do you like the most? Um, that might not be an accurate answer. It might not be in line with what they're actually doing with your product. 
Right, that makes sense. So I've only, I think I've only seen the the final iteration of your product or the the current one. I've only used the current one. But what what, what changes did you make to either the product or the way you presented the product based on these kind of early you know, validation or those uh, observations that that you were performing? Sure. So the the original product was a case, an iPhone case with two pop sockets, mm-hmm. one at the top of the case of the phone, one at the bottom. They collapsed into a cavity. So the, the, they collapsed flush with the case. Got it. And when you expanded one of these and used it as a grip, there wasn't a lot of room for your fingers because the cavity was taking up some of that space. That was one problem. And then the second the second challenge was getting that the pop sockets in the right place. So one on the top, one on the bottom, when in fact the majority of people like their pop socket right in the center. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just reconceived it as as a non-case product uh the repositional pop socket it has extra finger room because there's no cavity and uh it can be positioned wherever wherever one needs it and and can be repositioned too for different functionality if you want it down near the edge of your phone for a vertical stand you can move your pop socket down uh Mm. or if you want have two pop sockets one day jenna marbles and certain people still use two pop sockets on their phones she's a youtube yeah yeah, I'm not that level yet of uh, two pop sockets. I only use one right now. Well, uh, <laughs> probably I went from two to one, and I'll probably never go back. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned also as well that sometimes you have to, or in your case at least, that you had to market a product for the reason that customers think that they want it, and you know that they ultimately fall in love with another reason why they like the product. And the example you gave was a headset management uh, tool was the reason or was the way you market it, but then most people are using it for the grip, for the stand. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Like, how, what, does that what does that actually mean in terms of the way that you market a product? Sure. I mean, first I can tell you how I discovered it. You know, at trade shows, in groups, when I was uh, pitching the pop socket, I had a spiel where I would go through the different, different functions of the pop socket. And with two, there's quite a few functions. They, the pop socket also articulates at different angles. So you can have a, a shallow landscape stand. You can have a steep mm-hmm. landscape stand. You can have a shallow portrait stand, a steep portrait stand. Um, with two pop sockets, you can easily clip your phone on the side of your monitor um, and back before, uh, before uh, uh, messaging was coming up on people's screens. It used to only come up on our phones, right? This was really helpful to mm-hmm. clip your phone right onto your monitor. So you could see the messages come up. But as I was going through and then clipping it to your clothing, clipping it to short gym shorts if you don't have pockets, as I would give these pitches, I would realize that people got really excited about features that I knew they weren't going to use. So you know, I'd go through headset management and wow, I'd get an awe. And then finally the finale was clipping the phone to the monitor and every time people would go, oh, wow. <laughs> Um, but sure enough, when I see people using pop sockets, almost nobody's actually doing that. Right. That led us with packaging design to not package this just as a phone grip. Now we can do it, I think, because they're pervasive enough mm-hmm. in society. People have seen other people using them, and they appreciate that there must be some value to the grip. But initially, we were marketing them with our packaging and displays as headset management and stands. Um, just all, all the different functions except for the grip which is the one thing people fall in love with. Yeah, and does this, does this like bother you that you know that it's the, the, the real reason, the, the, the main reason why people continue to use your product is one way, but then you have to market it differently just to get them to try for the first time? 
No, we're lucky. Well, we don't anymore have to change that marketing. Uh, right. Now we do market it just as a phone grip and stand. But I was lucky enough to be able to be patient and let uh, our main marketing tool has been word of mouth. So let our evangelists convince people to put these in their hands and try them. Uh, our army of evangelists. So all the people that have pop sockets, they've been using them for either a month or three years. Whenever somebody asks one of these people, what is that? They'll, mm-hmm. They're going to hear that spiel. You know, I love the saying, it's changed my life and, you know, expands. And we let the evangelist talk people into trying one, even if they don't think they need it for the grip. Uh, and once somebody tries it for a day, typically they leave it on their phones. So it wasn't, no, it didn't upset me. I was just patient and waited sure. for for uh, these people to give it a try. Right. Now, speaking of getting people to try for the first time, it's it's a product that requires hands-on usage, right? I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head where it's such a visible product because it's on your phone. Everyone is always holding their phone up. And whenever I have mine, I someone ask me, what is that? I almost have to just rather them just try it out themselves rather than try to explain to them how it works. But for people that, especially early on, before it actually was pervasive where you could see in the physical world, how did you educate people on, on A, you know, why is this, uh, why do I need this product? Well, not so much why do I need this product, but how does this product work? That's a great question. I mean, I could I could almost answer by saying I couldn't. We tried. I mean, one of the methods was diverting their attention, like I said, from the grip, since people didn't want to try that aspect, and then giving visuals of it expanding and collapsing, mm-hmm. try to give people a sense of what it was. But you don't have long in a retail setting or even online to convince someone to buy your product. It was a little easier with our, our website, uh, popsockets.com, because there we could have videos. And if somebody's willing to watch a, you know, 10 second, 15 second video of the pop socket actually working, they're far more likely to buy it because they're far more likely to understand what it is and not dismiss it out of hand. Right. We, I mean, I should say though, our, our, our momentum really did come from word of mouth. It was people telling other people in person and showing them and handing them their phone and saying, try it. That's how, how this fire really spread. Yeah, it's certainly a, a a product that is is simple once you get the hang of it. And I think one of the potential downsides is that because it's such a simple product in the sense that it, it's it's not a compli- complicated product to use, you must have a lot of copycats that come into this space. I've seen other devices that aren't similar to, 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 to yours, but it's, it's a similar idea of some kind of grip on the phone. And of course, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a bunch of copycats that are making the exact same design. What has that experience been like for you? It's been interesting. So I remember when, when, when I first discovered counterfeits and I talked to uh, a former intellectual property manager from Otterbox. Otterbox went through, went, went through great challenges with counterfeits and they still do have some. Uh, when I told her about my issues, her response was, oh my, she smiled. She said, you should be so flattered. <laughs> and I thought to myself, yeah, that's not exactly my reaction. Yeah, I'm pretty angry about this. Um, but fortunately, we, we ended up hiring her, and she's built up a team, and we've been ahead of this. So most companies, they just start waking up to it before it's too late, um, and it's just really hard to, to, to wrap their hands around it once it's out of control. We have a team of, I think now, six people working full-time to um, 
enforce our intellectual property around the world. So, and we have law firms all around the world. So we take down thousands of listings for, for uh, fake pop sockets every week from, from marketplaces around the world. We've filed lawsuits against individuals and companies around the world. Um, and it works. So, you know, various people tend, tend to go do something else once they realize that not only are they not going to make money doing this because their listing will get taken down within a few hours, but they could potentially lose a lot of money uh, if we end up suing them. Mm. Now, what did you recognize early on that made you realize that you need to get control of it? Like, what was happening? What did you see happening in the marketplace that made you realize that this can become a much bigger problem over time? I wish I could give myself that much credit. So I didn't actually, I didn't see it coming as big as it, uh, uh, I didn't see the problem coming. Um, the problem that actually came, it was a bit of luck. It's that uh, I ended up hiring an expert and at the time, the expert said to me, so this was last fall, uh, she was from Otterbox, and she said, sure, I'll, I'll start in January of 2017. Let me just put some things in place for you in January, and then I'll probably work about two days a week starting in February. I'll just keep everything kind of going. And uh, by March, she needed to hire three more people. She was working 80-hour weeks, and now she's got a team of, five or six people beneath her and law firms all over the world. So neither of us expected to get hit uh, mm-hmm. as hard as we did. I don't know. It, it's been kind of fun because we are, we are doing well in the battle and there's a whole industry of companies fighting this battle. Uh, we work together with other big companies on how to protect our brands, you know, at conferences. And these other companies are really excited about what PopSockets is doing and they're watching us, you know, in this big battle epic battle that some of them have gone through, say, at earlier stages in their lives, like Crocs, Otterbox, Nike is always, you know, always dealing with these sorts of issues, but it's kind of a team effort. Right. Now, now, what, what is it, how do you manage all of this? Maybe there are listeners out there that have also invented their own products that aren't being counterfeited at the scale that you're being counterfeited at, but if they were just, you know, working by themselves, like what are some ways to try to get a hold of it or at least slow it down a bit until they can get the resources to hire, uh, you know, professionals and a team? I mean, step number one is the intellectual property. So filing your patents, Uh, appreciating the value of a design patent. This was a a mistake I made early on due to lack of experience. I I applied for a utility patent, meaning that the patent covers anything that that fits the the description of the invention sort of at a functional level, but doesn't matter how how it looks. And then I thought, huh, if I have that, that will also cover the ones that look like mine because they have to function. Uh, and utility patents are typically tend to be more valuable than design patents. But it turns out that when you're enforcing your IP, when you're trying to confiscate counterfeits, when you're trying to shut down factories that are making counterfeits, it's much easier to use a design patent. Uh, and so I would urge people to go ahead and file for that design patent in addition to any utility patents that they might file. Why, why do you find that that's the case, that design patents are easier to enforce? Because if you're, suppose you're a customs official and you open up a box of schmop sockets, <laughs> uh, you take one out and you ask yourself, is this infringing on, on uh, the intellectual property of pop sockets? You're not going to take the time to pull out a utility patent and read through all the claims and try to digest what the claims mean and then cut open that product and think, huh, does this really have every component of the claim needed to infringe on their patent you just don't have time to do that Mm -hmm. 
And, and because you don't have time, the agency itself, customs agency, doesn't give you the authority to do that, to spend your time. So they say, yeah, we're not, we're not going to enforce these utility patents unless we're ordered to uh, by what's called a general exclusion order. And we've, we've applied for one of those. But unless, you, unless the company has one of those, we're just going to pick up that schmop socket out of the box and we're going to compare it to a picture on a design patent. Mm-hmm. And if it looks just like it, we're going to confiscate them. It's just much easier to enforce. Got Same it. with a raid on a factory in China. If the police were raiding the factory, you can just look at a picture of what's in that factory and look at a picture on a design patent and say, huh, looks the same. So we're confiscating and, and confiscating everything and destroying the molds. Uh, it's a much easier process. I see. So like the design patent is more of like an eyeballing technique exactly. where it, it looks like it's a counterfeit because it looks like this photo and it's much, easy, much less work on the folks that are actually enforcing this, which makes it the more likely to help you enforce it. Exactly. And the same holds for trademarks and copyrights. So if somebody opens up a, a box and it says pop sockets on it, <clears throat> but it doesn't come from one of our factories, then they're going to confiscate that. It's as easy as that. Uh, those other factories are not authorized to be shipping with our trademark pop sockets. Uh, and likewise for copyrights. So if somebody has an image on their phone grip that looks exactly like our image that we've copyrighted or our graphic, somebody can confiscate that or enforce it. Uh, so I recommend that, yeah, I recommend that entrepreneurs, you know, appreciate the value of copyrights, trademarks, design patents over the value of a utility patent when it comes to enforcing um, and protecting their actual products. Really invest in that. And then the question arises, where in the world are they going to file? Just in the United States or it's expensive, right? If you want to start filing patents around the world to protect an invention and at, at the time you invent it, you often don't know whether anyone's going to buy it. Mm-hmm. So it's a big risk if uh, a, a patent lawyer tells you you need to spend $30,000 filing your patent around the world and you don't even know whether it's going to be a, a hit or not. It's just a gamble. So I don't have a lot of advice there. Get as much feedback as you can. If Often entrepreneurs are overconfident. They have to be to, to overcome all the, the resistance. But... If you're overconfident, you you got to be a little careful because you can easily overspend on all that IP and then not sell a single product. On the other hand, if you end up with a big hit, you want your protection around the world. And it's too late, by the way, to then file by the time you have a hit. There's windows that close You know, after, say, one year. Then after a second year, you can no longer file internationally. Mm-hmm. So you got to make these decisions early. Got it. So did you file for your utility and design pen from the very beginning or how long did you wait into? Well, I made the mistake. I didn't file for design patents. That was a big, a big error that I made early on. We have design patents now covering other products, but the main product is covered by a utility patent uh, here in the U.S. And uh, we've, we've had it granted in China, uh, Japan, um, Europe, it, it just got granted, and uh, we're waiting to hear from India, Canada. Maybe I'm missing someplace. But and, and what, what, how did you prioritize those countries, those places to to file the next patents? Well, how I prioritized them to file the original patent was just by cost of patent yeah. <laughs> versus number of people who live there. So India was a no-brainer. The patent cost me. I think $850 to file in India. And I don't know what their population is today, but large. it's pretty large. So that was a no-brainer. Uh, more difficult choices were, say, South Korea. Um, 
areas like that and Southeast Asia. And then moving forward, now that now that we have momentum, we spend to file, you know, almost everywhere mm. around the world. So, so it's not necessarily about how many sales at that moment you're generating from those places, but what's the market potential? Exactly. Got it. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about how you grew to this size. I think one of the things you mentioned to, to, to us was that you've teamed up with influencers who already have taken a liking to your products. Now, were you able to reach out to these, to these influencers early on and get your product in front of them? Like, how are they hearing about your product to begin with? Um, that, too, was a lot of luck. Uh, we had two, two, two hot spots on the map of the United States as far as uh, who was buying pop sockets early on. One was in Colorado, which is no surprise because that's where our headquarters are in Boulder. We were doing some school programs around Colorado selling pop sockets to middle schools and high schools. And then those schools would resell them and, and raise funds that way. So that started a, uh, a bit of a hot spot here in Denver and Boulder, but then the second hot spot on the map was Los Angeles and Hollywood. Um, several people have taken credit for this. I don't know the true story, but I've had several people tell me, "Oh, I'm the one that got pop sockets in Gigi Hadid's hands," um, or I know, yeah. That, I also hear frequently that somebody knows the inventor of pop sockets, and uh, it's usually some college kid or someone's <laughs> uncle. Um, so the, I don't know what truth there is to the actual story of how this happened, but celebrities started falling in love with pop sockets. Some of them approached me wanting to invest and it gave us great exposure. So, uh, Ryan Seacrest, um, Gigi Hadid and Kendall Jenner was seen using one. You may know the list better than I do. They're not popping up right now, but <laughs> yeah. So, so obviously, lots of big name influencers. Now, when you say teaming up with them, what does this usually mean? Uh, so, at first, we didn't team up with them. We just watched and we uh, enjoyed the the word of mouth, um, you know, advertising for right. them using pop sockets just organically on social media. But then we saw Jenna Marbles, a YouTube star using mm -hmm. pop sockets and that was the first time we decided to do a partnership because uh, the personality of the company seemed to match her personality just a fun it was a fun lighthearted attitude and we created a cool collection centered around her dogs uh, and she did two campaigns last year they were hugely successful so her fans ended up buying a lot of pop sockets we'll do another campaign with her most likely next year uh, and from there, we we then connected with the main uh, talent agencies in Hollywood, three main talent agencies, and and just went over their lists of talent to see who was already using pop sockets and who might fit with our brand for partnerships. When you reach out to like a talent agency, they what what's involved there? Like, are you coming to them and saying that you want to essentially offer a commission or a cut of the the sales to one of their talent, or how does it work? Yep. So uh, we reach out and um, you know describe the product, say which of their um, talent is already using the product. If 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 it weren't for that, I don't think we would have gotten a response from any of them. I think our emails would have gone straight in the trash because I'm sure they're receiving a lot of emails every day. But the fact that uh, celebrities were already using these and these celebrities were represented by one of these three agencies. And you were finding out about these celebrities through like Instagram, like them posting it with your product? 
YouTube, Instagram, or news, People Magazine, we'd see these celebrities using pop sockets in magazines. Serena Williams was another one. We haven't partnered with her, but she's been using a pop socket, and she often shows up in in uh, the media with her pop socket. Uh, so we spot them, approach the agency, and uh, uh, now it's relatively easy because mm-hmm. pop sockets gain popularity, but then just sit down with a list and see who makes sense. Uh, in the most organic fashion. So ideally it's somebody that's already using a pop socket so they can be authentic when they, when they talk about pop sockets. Got it. And when you do work with uh, celebrities, uh, how do you like to use typically structure that the deals, how do they usually work? I guess the, the, the most common model is just a royalty model. So the, we, we developed a special collection, uh, you know, that has a theme centered mm-hmm. on, on the celebrity, so it resonates with their with their followers, and we try to make that authentic too. So what whatever Jenna believes in, Jenna Marbles, and what she stands for, uh, that's what we want the collection to to look like. Uh, her collection, both of her collections, are just very zany, and she's very zany. So zany graphics of her dogs, uh, and then she would do some social media posts and one one major video on YouTube talking about her collection. Um, sending her fans to our website on popsockets.com to her collection. And then um, she would, she would receive a a royalty on whatever sales were generated. And do you have like some kind of service or tool that you use to, to manage all of this? You know, today I'm not sure what our e-commerce team is using for the original Geno programs. These were Excel sheets. We were exporting reports from Shopify. So there was just anything that bought anybody that bought her, product regardless if she drove I mean they most likely were driven by her but if anyone bought her product you would give her and you don't have to go into details about her deal but the idea is that for anyone that bought a product from that collection they would get a royalty uh, from that purchase yes or this came from her website so we use Google Analytics to track um, you know we would give links and could at least track the source of the traffic mm-hmm and then uh, attribute those sales to to Jenna. Got it. Now, you you speaking of tools and everything on your site. One thing that I saw that was really cool that that uh, is goes in line with creating these custom collections is the ability to design your own, create your own pop sockets. So, is this like an in-house application that you have on your site that allows people to upload their own images for the pop socket? How does it work? That's actually a custom, uh, custom application. So um, a developer called Diff uh, in Canada that works really closely with Shopify, and they, they do a lot of Shopify apps. Uh, they helped us develop both our current theme, which is a Shopify, uh, a custom Shopify theme, but they also helped us uh, develop our most recent custom uploader which sits uh, on a separate server, so it's not it's not coded in uh, Shopify's mm-hmm. liquid and CSS. So it's not uh, not a native Shopify app. Uh, and so when somebody gets to that uploader page, they're actually what's actually going on is they're getting kicked out of Shopify briefly onto I another see. server, and then kicked back to Shopify because uh, well, it's just easier for the right. for the functionality of that customization. So I really like the design of the the website. What goes into the way that you have the website structured or the kind of content that shows up on the the, the pages? 
Sure. So uh, we want the user to have an excellent experience, and we have two very different types of users. So we've got our our alpha followers who are going to our website, you know, weekly looking for the latest PopSocket, uh, seeing what's new. That person loves PopSockets. They know what a PopSocket is, and they know exactly where to find the new PopSockets. And then we have people come to our website who don't know what a pop socket is. Uh, so very different visitors, and we want it to be a great experience for both of these visitors. So it's a sort of a balance in educating somebody who has no idea what a pop socket is as quickly as we can without, um, without making it more arduous for, for one of our alpha fans to just find what they want and, and check out. Now how do you do that? That's a really important balance, right? For, for repeat kind of power users, power customers are coming to buy over and over again and also trying to get those new visitors to be educated for the first time. I think it's a balance that pretty much any entrepreneur has to face at some point. So what's your approach to making sure that you are serving both needs? It's a tough balance. So right now uh, on our homepage, it's not until the very bottom of the homepage that you'll see a video that explains what a pop socket is. We used to have a video right from the start, and we've done this because we find the majority of people coming to our site, uh, and more and more today, uh, are educated on what a pop socket is. So we are catering a little bit more toward the uh, the educated visitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on our uh, first homepage slider, so when you arrive on our webpage, the first image that you see uh, you'll see pop sockets attached to phones, and you'll see them expanded. But right next to them, you see pop sockets that are collapsed. Um, and that uh, these images here, an alpha person, an alpha fan might not realize what's going on here. That we're we're actually explaining what a pop socket is to someone who's never seen one. We're showing one expanded, one collapsed, right next to it, right next to it. All the while, we're showing new graphics on all of these. So that picture is, you know, it's it's targeting both of our audiences at the same time. Um, and then uh, we have a trending bar right after that, and that's also for the the alpha uh, customer who's just looking for their, for their new candy, basically. They go to this trending bar to see some updates uh, to make it easy for these people to see what's new. Uh, and then we have a new rollout menu that allows people to get to the collection of their choice as quickly as they can. So speaking of the trending, so I'm seeing some uh, popular brands here, you know, Harry Potter, I see the one for The Flash, I see uh, uh, Golden State Warriors uh, pop socket. So obviously licensing involved in this. What's that? What's that like? How do you manage the licensing portion of your business? It's a lot of work. Uh, So we have... Uh, two or three, I'd say two and a half, uh, I was about to say people, but it's not really two and a half people, but two and a half roles devoted to licensing. Uh, so these people spend uh, all of their days talking to our licensing partners, talking to new potential licensing partners, working on applications. And then in addition to those people, we have two graphic designers whose full-time jobs are to to develop the actual uh, designs for each of our licensing partners. Um, and then we have another person who works with our retail partners 
uh, on merchandising plans. So what we're going to sell in each channel, including our popsockets.com. So they would work with our e-com team, Amazon, Best Buy, Target, uh, Tilly's, Walmart, all of our partners to see what they want and how to collaborate with a licensor uh, on, on some kind of splash. You know, if it's Harry Potter, how we can work with Harry Potter on a Target program that they already have, say, so we can incorporate pop sockets into their program. It's a big, a big job, all these licenses. Right. So obviously a very fast growing business, a very large growing business. We're, we're talking about this, doing some of the math before we hit record here. Can you give us an idea of how, how large the business has grown or how fast it's grown since you started this? Sure. So uh, I launched out of my garage uh, in Boulder in 2014. So we're just completing our fourth year of business. Today we are in our uh, one, two, three, fourth office here in Boulder, a brand new building. Two weeks ago we put up our pop socket sign and that same day we were out looking for new office space uh, (laughs) because we've grown out of this office. And in terms of sales, uh, this year we will sell roughly 35 million pop sockets in our fourth year of business. Uh, the first year when I started in my garage, uh, I think I sold thousand about thirty to forty thousand pop sockets. So let's say thirty thousand. That's a thousand times yeah that's crazy yeah, right right yeah i mean it's something <laughs> well first of all thirty thousand in your first year is already pretty amazing and of course at the, the point that you're at now 35 million is even more amazing and this is pretty much like you mentioned off the back of word of mouth and, and influencers for the most part yep yeah we've done very little marketing this year we started doing you know just in the last few months some facebook ads and some google ads but before that uh, we had almost no no advertising or marketing budget other than through you know these influencer programs that we would do partnerships very cool so popsockets.com p-o-p-s-o-c-k-e-t-s.com is the website where do you want to see the business go next i want to see it go global Next year, 2018, we'll be focusing quite a bit on international business. So we're starting to see quite a bit of growth in Asia and Europe already. Uh, But we'd like to get pop sockets in the hands of people around the world, Africa, India, just about everywhere. And then uh, we'd like to get uh, new products in people's hands, too. So we have a, a new team in San Francisco, a product development and design team. And they are up to about 14 people in engineers and industrial designers who are working on a pipeline of new products. Awesome. Thank you so much again for your time, David. Sure. Thanks very much for having me, Felix. Here's a sneak peek for what's in store in the next Shopify Masters episode. So they make parts and pieces all across the country, and then they ship individual sub-assemblies to our fab shop in North Carolina, and we assemble everything there. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial. Also, for this episode's show notes, head over to shopify.com blog.